Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, the second quarter earnings season winding down. Uh, we expect Disney to report after the bell snap, reporting on the 10th of August, two days uh, from now. Here with us to talk about the media landscape uh, in more is Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, the CEO of WPP here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Great to have you. Good morning. With us here in uh, New York. Morning. Let's uh, let's look ahead here to these, uh, these snap results. I know that WPP has upped its spend uh, in snap. What do a lot of people not get about this about this platform, about this uh, company? We saw uh, the excitement leading up to the IPO and uh, maybe some disappointment that followed in the, the weeks and months uh, to follow. What do you see in the snap that, that others don't? Well, I don't know whether we see <laughs> I mean, if you compare, Enough to put somebody you behind can, it, yes. If you can, well, yes, but if you compare the levels of spending that we're talking about uh, are at the low end in in relation to the two, 200 million. The two giants. It's, well, it was $100 million last year, just under. Uh, which was about a quarter of their revenues uh, for uh, 2016. Uh, this year, we're projecting at about double that, about 200 million. But that pales into insignificance when you compare it to Google, where we were spending last year just under five billion, wow. and uh, with Facebook just just under two billion. This year, both of those will be up significantly uh, on where they were last year. So you are talking about. Um, uh, relatively minor spending in relation to the two big digital clients. Now, giants, Google and Facebook control about or influence about, what, 75% of Mm -hmm. digital spending. And a lot of people argue the increment each year of the growth each year, they take uh, even more than 100% because others drop by the wayside. So so it goes. But, But they are very significant and growing in significance. So we just went to Google Camp in... In Sicily, and there is uh, such a uh, thing. Uh, there is a Google camp. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it tries to mimic, I think, Allen and Company. Very good, Sun Valley. Um, keep the press out of that one yeah, too. Yeah. Um, but that basically, you know, just demonstrates yet again um, in in that environment how strong Google's offer is. Uh, there are challenges coming down the pike. I mean. There is a third force. Some people, when you said, what do we see in Snap that others don't see, it's not quite that. But people are looking for a third force because of the dominance of the the two big bananas. Mm. Uh, Facebook and Google are very significant. So people are always looking for a third force. It could be Snap, uh, which Facebook has imitated very successfully. uh, And Snap is imitating Facebook. And Google is actually imitating Mm -hmm. Facebook as well. So we're getting a lot of imitation. But we need a third force. It could be Oath. Which is the new Verizon AOL combination with Tim Armstrong? It could be the company we've invested in, AppNexus. It could be Snap, but it could well be Amazon. Amazon are challenging on the on the search side. There's no doubt that fifty five percent of product searches in America are initiated by by Amazon. The voice activated devices, whether it be Alexa or Echo um, and Alibaba today, I think, is actually uh, launching Genie, which is its voice-activated device. In in China, JD.com have had uh, the, the wonderfully named Ding Dong, uh, <laughs> a voice-activated device on offer for two years. But that also will influence search. And then, of course, Amazon in advertising as well, because Amazon is uh, building a strong advertising platform. You, you mentioned Sun Valley. We last spoke there, and you were headed yeah. to China for two weeks, and yes. you're bringing up 
Ding Dong and, and Jeannie and all of that. Yeah. What did you learn from that trip about um, the, the media landscape there, how it's changing and uh, where you might see well, if opportunity you want, if you in wanted China? to see a laboratory for what, what the world might look like here uh, or increasingly is looking like here, you, you go to China. I mean, people, I think, forget. They, they look at the UK economy and say that's one of the strongest, if not the strongest, e-commerce, internet-based economy. And you're not just going to Beijing and Shanghai. You're going. No, we all went. Over. We went uh, on on that trip. We started actually went to Taiwan. I have been to Taiwan for some time. We went to Taipei, and then we went to Shen, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Hangzhou, uh, and then Beijing. So pretty much the coastal, yeah. the coastal mm-hmm. plain. We didn't go into Cheng, Chengdu and Chongqing, which we did uh, two years ago, three years ago. I mean, the the thing that hits you right in the eyes is the technology, the Shenzhen campus of Huawei has 50,000 people on it. When I last visited it, uh, I think Huawei's revenues were about mm-hmm. 35 billion, it's now 75 billion. And of course, they don't have access to the US market, which is about 22% of the market. So their penetration and growth uh, is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. The Alibaba uh, campus also, which I think has 15,000 people on it, uh, mm. At Hangzhou is another good example of of these technology firms. So one th- lesson you learn is that that we tend to think that the Chinese steal technology or copy it or have done. But we said the same thing about the Japanese. Right. We said the same thing about the South Koreans. We said the same thing about the Hong Kong Chinese. But I- if they were stealing, which may have been the case, they're certainly not now. They're creating mm. now and they're becoming a, a major technological f- force. The other the other thing you see is the rise of the local companies. Mm. So the <clears> multinationals, the West. Western multinationals tend to think that their competition are other Western multinationals. Right. They're not. It's the local companies that are increasingly penetrating not just the Chinese markets, but increasingly yeah. the Asian markets too. Quick business question. I want to rip up the script. Tell me about automatic data processing. How does a board respond to Mr. Ackman of a big, fancy, prestigious company, whether it's ADP or WPP, <laughs> Alphabet Soup today? Well, I, 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 you certainly don't ignore them. Uh, I think you 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 have to. Uh, in, uh, my own view would be you have to engage with them. You have to talk to them. You have to listen to them. You have to mm-hmm. to to consider the ideas that they they have, uh, and then come to your your views. And the board has to mm-hmm. come to views about whether they 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 respond right. or they don't. But I, I I think I think you ignore it, ignore these people at, at your peril. Yeah. Uh, I want to rip up the script, uh, Sir Martin. You have been uh, most accommodative and supportive of the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Justice Duchess and uh, uh, in, in the charitable efforts of the of the Crown. I, I at gunpoint over the last number of days have had to binge watch the Crown on Netflix. <laughs> What's the future of the royal family in your? United Kingdom. Good been, idea. You have, you, have ripped, you have ripped up the script. Right? No, the last thing script. I thought at seven o'clock in the morning in New York with Tom yeah, Keane and on Bloomberg. Moving, come on. A moving photo in the cover of the New York Times of Prince Philip, age 96, retiring. Yes. The well, Queen, new, new generations, isn't that? We, we're going to have the next How will generation. they be received by the people of the United Kingdom, the new generation? Uh, I think well, actually. I think they've they've adapted uh, or in the process of adapting extremely effectively. Um, I think that's one been one of the uh, one of the the cardinal attributes of the royal families that they have over the years been very sensitive uh, and aware of public opinion and changes and shifts in public opinion and have adapted uh, effectively as a result. What's the shift going on right now? Well, you, you're, you're seeing – we have to see what happens uh, over time sure. in terms of uh, what happens in terms of succession uh, with uh, Prince Charles and then uh, beyond Prince Charles. But 
I think actually they have adapted extremely effectively over mm-hmm. the years. I and mean, the Crown, the Crown is a wonderful uh, series. It's a wonderful piece of binge, binge viewing. <laughs> Uh, and of course, what's great? I looked for you in there. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't around. The later I was editions, around later, the later, uh, later seasons. I was yeah. around at the death of Churchill, but I was a very young vintage then, Tom. Yeah. But one, the wonderful thing about the Crown, of course, it can go on forever, can't it? Really? I mean, I think we're, we're, we finished the the first series one at just after the death, Suez. the death of the yeah. death of Ch- uh, Churchill and yeah. Suez and Anthony Eden, yeah. uh, and we've got a long way to go yet, Tom. I mean, this is this is going to run and run and run, mm-hmm. and, and probably run through. All these you, generations. I'm going to miss Claire Foy, though. At I think. Google Camp, yeah. did you meet Dragon Lady? Did you meet Dragon Lady at, at Google Camp? No, I, I reported not. she was there as well. <laughs> Emily, is that her name, David? I, we, we can't. We can't. You we can't, can't divulge. We, who we you can't met. divulge. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Off the record. Sir Martin <laughs> can't divulge which dragon he wrote on at Google Camp. Sir Martin Sorrell, thank you so thank much you, for too brief a visit today on important matters like China and ADP and. And the royal family. And the crown. Yeah. That was it's, a left field. That's what you are. <laughs> no, no, but, but it's, it, it's the, the queen is what, 96? Is that right? 91? 90, no. 91, I think she's younger. It's a pop quiz. Prince Philip as, as well. Leon Cooperman of Goldman Sachs and Omega. His philanthropies as well, Columbia Business School and St. Barnabas Medical Center out in New Jersey. And we must speak, of course, of another New Jersey institution, Automatic Data Processing. We'll get to that in a moment. Leon, congratulations, all of our listeners, particularly some of us that have not shared the pixie dust of you and your bride, Toby, want to know how you get to 53 (laughs) years of marriage. You two met at Hunter College. I think this is before you had a gazillion dollars. What has been the magic for Leon? on and Toby as you celebrate your 53rd anniversary. Well, thank you for your congratulations. I just get up every morning and apologize for what I might have done (laughs) in the coming days. Well, that would be preemptive apology. I like congratulations that. on that. If we're lucky, we'll survive 53 years of Bill Ackman. I believe you chiseled a Cooperman letter to Mr. Ackman on his attention to automatic data processing, Frank Lautenberg's company. What is in that letter, Mr. Cooperman? No, no, I, I want to make something very clear, uh, uh, a couple of disclosures. I have no dog in this fight. Uh, I was a director for almost 20 years. I left the board about five years ago. Uh, I gave all my stock away to charity when I left the board. That was a big mistake because the stock has almost tripled since I left the board. I should have given cash and kept the stock. Uh, and I, I, I know and I respect Bill Ackman. Notwithstanding my respect for him, I consider his behavior in this instance, the best described as foolish, inappropriate, and irresponsible. And, and, I, and I, I want to make sure I'm not addressing the merits of what he's going to say next Thursday at 9 o'clock in the morning. I gather he's uh, going to have yeah. this big uh, uh, deal. What's he doing deal. wrong? What he's doing wrong is the company deserves more respect. Uh, apparently, uh, as I understand, he has spent six months studying the company. With about eight days left before the window and the nominating committee closed, he went to the company very late in the process and asked them to delay the closing of the window, which is an inappropriate request. He owns four-tenths of one percent of the company in terms of actual stock. The rest is all derivative securities. 
Uh, and uh, it, he should have either planned to go to the company well before the window closed, or he should be patient and wait the year. This company has basically done a phenomenal job to investors. Okay, um, you know, I, I said this yesterday in another program. You know, Ben Graham and the intelligent investor hypothesized that you know analysts evaluate management twice in their decision-making process: once through the numbers and once through face-to-face. The numbers are unbelievable at ADP. That doesn't say anything about the future. It also says about the past. What are the numbers? This right. company went public in 1961 with a minimum value. I think they sold 100,000 shares at three dollars to the public, and I think there have been three or four splits since then. Today, they have a market cap of $50 billion. They employ 58,000 people. Right. They have over 700,000 well, clients. Within this, Add to that, Leon, ahead, I, I think this is important. The, the issue here is what's the delta that can he make on this? If everyone agrees, including a street off the Bloomberg terminal, there are three buys, 16 holds, mm-hmm. ADP seems to be fully valued within a broad spectrum, 29 times trailing earnings. What more do you see that he can gain? Where's his delta or his alpha, his gain on a fully priced blue chip? Uh, that's a different question. I, like I said, I'm addressing myself to his deportment. I'm not addressing myself to his argument. I know what his argument is. He says that paychecks margins are twice that of ADP, and if properly run, they should double their margins, which is a, a, a fallacious argument because they're in a different business than paychecks. I'll read you something. I got an email from an undisclosed retired executive. Uh, from the company says, I just read your comments on the above on Bloomberg and agree with you completely. In addition, I think the rationale for the activists like Bill Ackman, who have been looking at ADP, is based on a margin comparison with paychecks, among others. What they do not seem to understand is that ADP is a very different business from paychecks and other like domestic competitors, and that that when you are in the national accounts arena, international payroll, human resources, and have a large PEO, margins are reduced by workers' compensation insurance. Right. Okay. Right. So it's a different kind of business. So well, the point I'm going to make is they generate 40% return on equity. The S&P is maybe 15 or 16% these days. They do it with a debt-free balance sheet. The typical corporation today has 35% debt right. to capital. So their return on capital is very high. Well, They've had a 17% compound rate of return, rate of growth, over a 50, 60-year period. This is a record unparalleled in American industry. So this guy comes on the outside, and he says, I could run your business better than you could run your business. This is what you got to do. I'm saying... The, the ADP has always done everything for the shareholder. They spun out their auto uh, uh, dealer services business, knowing full well when they did that, they would lose their AAA credit rating. Because the rating agencies look at one of the elements of giving a credit right. rating okay. is size. They gave up size because they thought it was the right, right. thing for the shareholder. Joining us Every worldwide, port- let me get this cut in here, Leon, and keep this going with David Gura. Joining us worldwide, Leon Cooperman of Omega as we talk automatic data. David, I want to point out... On a revenue basis, ADP is four times the size of paychecks, 12 plus billion versus a $3 billion compare and contrast. David Gura? Yeah, Mr. Cooperman, let me just ask you what this approach, the way that Mr. Ackman appears to be doing this, says about the state of activist investing today. Can you draw any conclusions about where activism is in light of what we've seen? 
Look, uh, uh, activism is a very complex situation. Uh, it's a little different question, but essentially I think that the, the market is reasonably fully valued. Uh, returns are hard to come by, and uh, there are select hedge funds that decided the way to generate returns is going the activist approach. And I would say that I've seen uh, the best of activism and the worst of activism from the same firms. And I, I look at activism as an uh, uh, individual situation one at a time. And what I'm saying here is I think, and Tom gave a lot of statistics, I don't know what he's going to gain, 29 times earnings, uh, you know, 40% return equity, great long-term record. Uh, you know, if he's right that they could double their margins, uh, which I doubt, by the way, because they're in a different business. They're in a high-touch business. It's a little bit like a brokerage firm. A brokerage firm says, I don't want to do any business with you at one cent a share, but I'll do all your business at 10 cents a share. Okay, you can't cherry-pick if you're serving large national clients, you basically have to provide them a full suite of services. And some services have high, higher margins than other services. And uh, the, I think Bill is missing that. But again, my point is very simple. Do you make the kind of hoopla he's making, or do you sit down with the company in a quiet, closed manner? And I, so I think he's got some personal motivations that I question. The company deserves more respect for how they've conducted their affairs. This is a record second to none in American industry. And Mr. It's Rodriguez, Carlos Rodriguez has, has invited Mr. Ackman to sit down and do, as you say, to talk to them about this uh, in, in a quiet uh, room. Why did you – walk us through your calculus here. Why did you decide to write this email? Why did you decide to, to go public about the email? What, what prompted you to speak out about this? Well, I know the people at ADP well. I know their culture, and uh, I believe uh, he's saying what I think is appropriate. And I think it's uh, inappropriate that, look, he's going to put them into a costly proxy contest. He's going to divert management tension from running the business. We're very in a competitive world. They have to focus on their business. It's unnecessary. You know, also, it's interesting. He has three people nominated to the board, one of which, and I don't know any of the people other than Bill, uh, one of which is 71 years of age. If he studies the company's buy they have a mandatory retirement age of 72. So this is going to be a direct, the time this proxy fight is over, this guy won't even be qualified to serve on the board. You know, it's just yeah. unnecessary. It's unnecessary, and it serves a different yeah. purpose. Leon, so, uh, automatic data processing, back to Mr. Lautenberg, Senator Lautenberg, has been not a model. Actually, in all fairness, uh, Henry Taub was the founder. Yes, yes, Frank yes, Rapp of course. Yeah, I stand correct. Thank okay. you, sir. Uh, they have always been a charming, ginormous success with a mom-and-pop tone. They've, also, they've always had a locality of New Jersey that's been, to many of us, charming. Has that been their trap? Does Bill Ackman look at them as a bunch of hayseeds from New Jersey? Look, I'm gone for five years. I doubt that he looks at that, that way. They have, you know, major national accounts. They issue one out of every six non-governmental payroll checks to the country. So they have big clients, they have small clients, they have <clears throat> national accounts, they have local accounts. You know, and, right. and again, it's uh, this is the problem in how Bill is looking right. at the margins. He's not allowing for the fact that they're in a different business than paychecks. But if you look at the rate of return on the stock, again, I'm not knocking paychecks. They've outdistanced paychecks over three years, five years, and ten yeah. years in terms of return in the stock market. Liam, what, is he, what is he looking for? Uh, you know, well, what is he expecting these guys to do? We're going to find out, a here, job. find out here in a few days. Leon Cooperman, you've never seen all quiet on the hedge fund, all quiet on the equity market front. Volatility now is low, low, low. Can Leon Cooperman do business as usual in the milieu of the quiet of this August? 
Well, you just have to be patient. That's all. You have to be patient. It's as simple as that. I think that everybody has been busy moving out on the risk curve uh, because uh, the Fed has conducted monetary policy in a fashion that's forcing people to take on more risk. Uh, if, you know, if you were a buyer of T-bills because you were risk-averse, mm-hmm. somewhere along the way you concluded, I can't survive on zero. So I'm going to buy T-bonds and take duration risk. The buyer of T-bonds says, well, I'm not impressed. I can't survive on two percent, uh, I'm going to take industrial credit risk. So you move to industrial credits. The industrial credit buyer said, well, four percent doesn't impress me. I'm going to go for high yield. And the high yield buyer says, well, I'll go to yeah. the opaque structured credit market. And then the structured credit guy says, well, I'll put 25 percent right. of my fund in equities. Mm-hmm. So everybody's moved out in the risk curve. And uh, right. when the circumstances change, there is risk in the market. But everybody's pointing that risk. Yeah. I know you have Jeff Gunlack, who's a terrific, uh, terrific, uh, you know, thoughtful person uh, your program, I think, today. Uh, I heard him uh, advertise. But, you know, uh, when circumstances change, the, the market will change. Right. But uh, basically, as I've said uh, free, repeatedly, bear markets don't materialize out of immaculate conception. They come about for fundamental reasons. Right. You know, and I've, always, I've identified four reasons that you generally have a bear market. Reason number one, and most prevalent, is the stock market smells an oncoming recession and declines in anticipation of recession. The economic numbers don't read recession. Mm-hmm. In the United States, they read slow growth, 2 2.5%, with some acceleration. Europe is doing better. Mm-hmm. China is growing 6.5%. Japan is doing modestly better. So the global economy is growing north of 3%. Recession doesn't seem to be the forecast. Okay. Number two is the Fed turns hostile and takes the punch out of the punch bowl. We yeah. have a Fed moving extraordinarily slowly, Okay, mm-hmm. and they don't present. Valuation levels presently are low relative right. to interest rates, but I, I happen to agree with Mr. Greenspan says that, you know, bonds are a bubble, but I believe he felt that way for three or four years. Right. We've all been wrong. All been wrong on bonds. The third reason you have uh, a significant correction is the market becomes euphoric and its pricing very sloppy. And, uh, you know, I love uh, the comment that John Templeton coined, bull markets are born in pessimism, they grow in skepticism, they mature in optimism, and they die in euphoria. I see very little signs of euphoria. The individual is not heavily participating in the market. Uh, but, you know, the market well, is not okay. undervalued. <clears throat> you mentioned, so, you mentioned fourth, Sir John. Well, tell me the fourth thing, please, quickly. Well, the fourth reason you have a bear market is some significant geopolitical event catches the yeah, market okay. by surprise. Whether it's a Cuban Missile Crisis, right. whether it's a, the Kennedy, the President Kennedy taking on the steel industry, right. something shocks well, the market. To Sir a John, lot of things to worry about: North Korea, Lee, Ukraine, Russia, whatever. I'm yeah, sorry, okay. Go ahead. But Leon, to Sir John Templeton, and I guess this goes back to Mr. Weinberg and your Goldman Sachs. Are you in the mood now? The trees are growing to the sky. No, interest rates are not going to the sky. Okay. Uh, you know, number one, we live in a global economy, uh, and we're tied into European interest rates as well as our own interest rates. I think what I would say is that we're returning to normalcy. We're slowly on the path to normalcy. We've been in a very abnormal environment. You know, a year ago, if you lived in Denmark, you would get a check every month because you took out a house mortgage. They would give you a negative interest rate. Six months ago, uh, right. uh, Switzerland borrowed 50-year money at a negative interest rate. That doesn't make any sense. And the Bund is 47 basis mm-hmm. points in Germany. Okay, In the United States, historically, a 10-year government bond is right. yielded in line with nominal <clears throat> GDP, nominal GDP being the summation 
appreciation of inflation uh, and real growth. The world I see is, uh, the, as I said, we're returning to normal. So let's say normal is the following. Half to 1% right. growth in the labor force, 1.5% growth in productivity. That's 2% okay. real. And 2% for inflation is 4% nominal. In a 4% nominal world, I think the Fed funds rate ought to be 2%, and the 10-year government ought to be 4%. Okay. It may take a year to get to 2% of Fed funds. It may take two to three years to get to 4%. In that world, the multiple in the market would be 17 times. Okay. If I take 17 times the earnings estimate, the market's in a zone okay. of fair value. Leon, that's too much math for Tuesday. We do that much math on Wednesday. <laughs> One final question, Leon Cooperman. Our Alex Steele did, I thought, an allegiac and wonderful interview with Mr. Blankfein, again, of your Goldman Sachs. Tell me about trading desks at firms. Did, did Goldman Sachs in this stumble of one quarter, was it just about making a lousy Trump trade? Uh, I'm not close enough anymore. I retired 26 years ago. As I can tell you, they're, they're a superb firm. They're extremely well managed. Uh, the press is, you know, it's got to find something to say at all times. Uh, I look at a 160 or 70 year record as more indicative than okay. one quarter. So don't don't sell Goldman Sachs short. They're David smart Gur- people. They know what they're doing. Yeah, David let, Gur- let me get a last in word here. He's got to go to breakfast with <laughs> I Tony. Know, I know. Break, jump uh, in here. Mr. Cooper, have you gotten a reply from Mr. Ackman? And what are you going to be listening for on the 17th of August when this? web presentation gets well, underway with Bill I, Ackman. You know, Bill, Bill called me twice. Again, I, I think he's kind of missing my point, uh, and I want to make sure you understand my point. I'm not addressing – in fact, I'd say a little bit the following. If he has a, such an alarming report to make that this company's been mismanaged, what the hell is he going along a 28-multiple stock? You know, if he exposes that they've done a terrible job and they're vulnerable, uh, that their business is weaker than everybody thinks. Everybody thinks they're wonderful, right? That's what 29 times earnings is all about. I think they're wonderful. I'm not making a forecast about the future. I'm saying let's have civility. You know, this company has been always run for the shareholders. They have an open-door policy. They would have received Bill. Bill waited too close to the closing of the nomination window, basically, uh, and that was his responsibility. Now, to me, uh, maybe I'm a, 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 you know, a, a wuss, but to me, this company's performance would merit his doing nothing for a year, spending the next 12 months or some part of the next 12 months convincing the company that he's got something relevant. He's a thoughtful guy. He's a hardworking guy. Okay, he's just he has a uh, personality streak that's uh, different than some. Two different phone than calls. Me. Two phone yeah. calls. Was the conversation civil? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. He respects me. I respect him. And, uh, you know, he says, don't say anything until you listen to my presentation. Yeah. Says, the presentation is not the point. You know, uh, let me just say this. He's going to get pissed off at me, if I can say that on, on, on TV, radio, whatever. But basically, I give a lot of lectures to young kids at colleges in terms right. of guidance. And I tell them, no matter how rich you are, the one luxury you cannot afford is arrogance. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Look, one, I'll leave it at that. One quick question. Are you taking Toby to the grill tonight? It's a new hot spot. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking Toby to the Berkshires to go to Tanglewood. Don't Beautiful. worry. Toby takes care of himself. I tow the line. Leon That's Cooper- how you survive for 53 years. I would think so. Mr. Cooperman, thank you so much. Leon Cooperman of Omega uh, with us, particularly on automatic data processing and Mr. Ackman. You learn anything there, David? Are yeah, I know what? that Schubert is on the agenda tonight at Tanglewood. Schubert's... Uh Oh, listen to you. you So enjoy the Schubert, Mr. Cooperman. One of my sources in August, folks, you know, it's sort of like summer and 
David's worried about, you know, are the tomatoes looking good and is the kale good? I like pick a research topic. And my research topic this summer, forced on me by the brilliant work of Olivier Blanchard on hysteresis and some great IMF work on labor share, is on just that. How much is labor as a percentage of corporate income? And it is an ugly picture. That's going to be one of our big themes over the next hour. Jared Bernstein, again, senior fellow. I love this. CBPP. Acronyms in Washington, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He is the liberal economist. Conservatives must read, as they do often, to get uh, very good analysis in some of these trends. Um, Jared, to push against CBPP, the Economic Policy Institute, I guess it's a better America. For how much of America is it a better America? Well, for a long time... The wage and income gains for uh, the bottom two-thirds of the income scale have been quite weak, with one notable exception, which would be the second half of the 1990s. So, for example, if you look at the average earnings of the bottom, say, 75% or so, uh, you know, they're not that different now than they were in, say, 2000, and they're not that different in 2000 than they were in 1980. So they've had some bips and bops up and down. Most of the growth has accrued to those in the top 10%, and among the top 10, it's been the top 1, and among the top 1, it's been the top 0.1. So there's been increasing concentration where the uh, kind of the, the, the glue that used to kind of attach economic growth to median and low-paid workers, that's kind of been missing for the past few decades. David Leonard has a fabulous uh, graphic display out in the New York Times. I'll get it out on uh, Twitter, folks, of the change of our lifespan in labor, of the haves and the have-nots. This is off of important words from, among others, Mr. Piketty. Jared Bernstein, is it, is it two Americas or is it almost three Americas? where there's a middle class that's, that's caught between the two? Jeez, I don't know, I don't know the, quite, quite what the right number is, because y- you might say there were sort of two Americas in the sense that most of the growth was accruing to the top, and then, and then everyone else was kind of uh, uh, struggling along with stagnating wages and incomes. But then you had these political divides that appear uh, uh, with uh, the election of Donald Trump, and there you have a kind of interpretation that says, you know, kind of one group of Americans is taking from another, or other countries are eating our lunch. Once you have this kind of maldistribution of growth, demagogues often surface and point to somebody, some group that they vilify and say they're the bad guy. And of course, uh, economics and life and distribution of growth is much more complicated than that. Jared, I pulled up a chart yesterday uh, on Bloomberg Television looking at um, skilled workers, workers who had gone to uh, college versus those who had just finished high school. And there's a a widening divide there. Uh, Those with a high school education are actually seeing an uptick in participation, and they're seeing a downtrend here in those who've taken some college or have an associate's degree. When you look at the the, the most recent report from the Labor Department, what did you learn about who's getting jobs uh, in this economy, particularly when it comes to education? Well, there you actually see, uh, as you suggested, it's not just the college-educated who are 
who are picking up the pace. In fact, uh, if you look at, as you said, if you look at folks with less than a college education, their participation rates have been growing. The problem is that they've been on a long-term downward trend. So you sort of have to separate the structure from the cycle. If you look at uh, guys, prime age guys, 25 to 54, without a college degree, they're the ones who over the long term have really lost ground. But you bring up a really important point that's overlooked in this conversation. People write off those guys saying uh, there's no room for them in the economy. Well, even over this business cycle, this expansion, which has been, you know, kind of plotting for sure, their participation rates, especially their employment rates, have actually gone up considerably. They've maybe erased two-thirds of what they've lost. And so it, it does say that while there's a structural problem, no doubt about it, there's also a cyclical response. These guys will come back to work if the labor demand is there. At least many of them will. I pivot here to ask you about the, the conversation around tax reform in Washington. Of course, the House and Senate on recess, now the president up in, in Bedminster, but there are, I'm sure, staffers toiling away in the bowels of the, the buildings on Capitol Hill. Let me read you the headline from a piece on the Bloomberg this morning. Republicans discuss a mix of temporary, permanent tax changes. Looking now uh, at uh, sort of the contours of what's tax reform and what are tax cuts. Do, do you think we're headed now toward cuts versus reform? I, I would strongly assert that we are, and I think the headline that you just read suggests it. Basically, the way to look at this is if you're talking about a kind of tax program like uh, George Bush II uh, put into place, this is a program that to meet budget rules had to sunset in 10 years, so that's not permanent. And when you start hearing stuff about sunsets, you know that they're trying to meet budget rules that require that they don't increase the deficit outside the 10-year window. That's going to be a tax cut, not tax reform. And I think that's problematic, both in the sense that we were just talking about that exacerbates uh, the inequality because most of these cuts go to the wealthy, and also because we're going to lose trillions of revenue, which the Treasury really needs to meet many of the challenges we face. Jared, within that labor dynamic, to speak for conservatives listening to this program and Republicans and supporters of Mr. Trump, do, and this goes, folks, to a terrific op-ed by Catherine Rempel in the Washington Post today. Do we advantage the poor? Do we advantage those that support the left by taking it from the wealthy and from the haves? Or can we do it by building GDP growth? Well, I actually have been a big advocate of the latter, although I haven't put it in the context of building GDP growth, because I think that gets thrown around way too kind of carelessly. People say, oh, I can get to 3% or 4% without any real cogent plan to boost productivity or labor supply. But just like my last comments to David, what I think would, is one of the great and undertapped solutions to the inequality problem is a full employment labor market. Now, you might say, don't we have that already? Well, we're certainly moving in that direction. And as we've moved in that direction, you've seen some pressure on wage growth. Nominal wages have gone up from around 2 to 2.5% or so. Um, I don't like the way they're kind of sitting there. I think they ought to be accelerating. But I th you know, we've had full employment really only 30% of the time since 1980. Before that, we had it 70% of the time. Uh, that's using CBO's measures of, uh, of the full employment rate. So we live in an economy where full employment, by the way, that's, full employment is, is the assumption in every economics textbook you read. That assumption's wrong. We live in an economy where you know, more than two-thirds of the time, we're, we, we've got slack labor markets. So I would think that liberals and conservatives would want to do something about that. What happens when we get to full employment, when there's, when there's universal acknowledgement that we're there? What changes policy-wise, Jared? 
Well, it's a great question, and one of the things that definitely happens is you draw more people into the job market, and there's more pressure on wages. Basically, middle and low-wage workers have the bargaining clout, the bargaining power that they lack in slack labor markets uh, to put pressure on uh, on the wage bill. Do you see any indication of that? I see some indication of it. I definitely do. I I see a little bit less than I might have expected. But here's the other thing. This is completely theoretical. Well, not completely. This is largely theoretical. There's some evidence. So what's one of our biggest macroeconomic problems? It's slow productivity growth, right? Well, I I have something I've written about called the uh, full employment, F-E-P-M, the full employment productivity multiplier. I actually believe, I, I, I believe at full employment, I've got some evidence, but not a ton, at full employment, you enforce a kind of discipline among firms where in order to maintain their profit margins, they have to uh, establish a level of efficiency. They have to squeeze out some of their inefficient uh, production practices mm-hmm. in order to maintain their profit market margins in the face of pressure okay. on earnings. Let's do this. Let's come back and talk to Jared Bernstein about his alphabet soup, F-E-P. M. Jared Bernstein with CBPP. Lots to talk about. Jared Bernstein with us. He is someone who's done smart and consistent work across all of our politics uh, in support of Democrat politics uh, within Economic Policy Institute and now uh, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. And of course, provided perspective and counsel to the former vice president, Mr. Biden. Jared, a political question, but you are attuned to this. Can the progressive elite Democrats, the non-Joe Bidens, can they find the Joe Biden Democrats in the next two go-arounds of 18 and 20? Is it feasible they can find a Democrat Party constituency crying out for representation? Well, it's definitely feasible, and it's also something that they're uh, explicitly trying to do. I I don't know. You guys have probably reported uh, on their better deal ideas. Many of those ideas try to push back on some of the trends behind the problems we were just talking about. You mentioned, interestingly, that you're you're looking at this decline in the labor share of national income. Well, there's a very nice paper out recently by a bunch of top economists, David Auder, Larry Katz, others, and uh, it finds that the concentration uh, among firms, kind of almost a monopolistic concentration of firms in areas like transportation, airlines, retail, banking, uh, contributes to this decline in labor share. So in this better deal platform is a kind of trust buster function to go after some of this excessive concentration. Again, an old idea that dates back to Adam Smith and really isn't necessarily liberal or conservative at all. It's just, you know, smart uh, economics. Jared, I have I've talked with Tim Phillips of Americans for Prosperity, talked with the head of uh, Heritage Action a couple of days ago about their plans for for moving ahead here with tax reform, the, the argument that they plan to make. Are you seeing uh, progressive groups coming together in, in the same way? Uh, I noted in my conversation with Mr. Phillips uh, a keener interest in talking about tax reform uh, than the group had talking about uh, health care. Are we seeing a similar response mm-hmm. from progressive groups? Well, look, I mean, I, I'm very, as you know, I'm, ver- I'm very much into this uh, distinction between tax reform and tax cuts. The former tax reform means at least revenue neutral, uh, broaden the base, lower the rates, close a bunch of loopholes, that kind of thing. And there's some talk of that. But what I think we're going to end up with is just the same old sort of tax cuts that increase the deficit and have some phony budgeting in there to, to make that deficit uh, problem go away. So 
you know, I, I'm, I, my concern is that the groups that are out there that are fighting for uh, a tax code that sounds good to, to, to middle class people, you know, they're really just trying to sell them the same old snake oil. What did you make of the, the, the one-page statement that we got before the House and the Senate went on recess? This was a, a statement signed by uh, Republican leadership in the House, the Senate, uh, and the administration, uh, the so-called Big Six. Uh, it was a page long, uh, squarely saying the, mm-hmm. the border-adjusted tax was off the table. But what, what could you read between the lines there, that it sure. took so long to come up with that one piece of paper? Well, that, it's, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, before that, a few weeks ago, uh, Orrin Hatch, who's on that group of six and one of the big tax writers in the Congress right now, sent out a, a, a note basically saying, hey, if anybody has any good ideas for tax reform, let me know. <laughs> so this is their brand, and they got almost nothing. I mean, basically, all they know is they want to cut taxes, and they, they're just kind of lurching around figuring out how to do it. And it has surprised me. On health care, it didn't surprise me at all, because they're not really known for thinking that much about health care <clears throat> yeah. policy. Jared, are we overtaxed? When you sum up the taxes that each individual li- li- listener has, not this gimmick of look at the federal, look at the state separate, mm-hmm. sum up the eight taxes we have every year. Are we overtaxed, uh, those that are working and paying their fair share? It's not that simple a question to answer. Certainly relative to other countries, this is contrary to something Trump always says. We're undertaxed probably by about 10 percentage points of GDP. That is, we collect something like 30 percent of GDP in all forms all of taxes. All taxes in. Everything all in. All taxes all in. And other countries are, you know, closer to 40 percent. So, you know, in that sense. But, you know, we're not Denmark. We're not Sweden. So I don't know that that's that responsive to answer your question. I think the answer to that question is, you know, for, for, first of all, the tax code is way too complex. I don't know if we're overtaxed, but we're certainly too complexified in our taxes. But secondly, I think the answer to that question is, how do you feel about the public goods that you're getting? I mean, nobody wants to pay higher taxes, but look around and ask yourselves, are our public schools where we want them to be? Are our roads and our water systems, are our bridges want them to be? Are, are we financing our retirement security through our social insurance programs adequately? Are we ready for geopolitical risk, for climate risk? And the to me, the answer to that question, especially if you look at our demographics, is no. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that's where I take yeah. that. I got 12 seconds. Is Vice President Biden going to run? He might. Yeah. Oh, what well a put. What well a, put. I believe an economist <laughs> just answered the question. Jared Bernstein, thank you that you right might come that. on with us. Great. You are correct about I'm that. I'm setting 100%, the now. The yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> Biden might run. Uh, Bernstein, Jared, thank you so much. The Center on Budget and Policy, he's slick. He's like, he's, he's been in Washington too long. Well, as you he say, uh, you know, invaluable to listen to, no he matter might. what your political stripes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.